You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, have you ever had um, really good life plans and then the problem is that life doesn't want to cooperate? That you sort of have this vision of how, how life is going to go, either a segment of your life or the entire life or maybe dreams and aspirations in a few certain areas and, um, and we plan and we sort of have assumptions that we know aren't true, assumptions that life is going to go a certain way and then when life throws a curveball at us, sometimes we almost, you know, we act surprised that it happened and the reality is that happens all the time. Life is filled with winding paths. Life is filled with ups and downs and um, <clears throat> I have thought, and you probably have too, of I would love to know what it's like. How do you live the fullness of the Christian life when you are in the deepest valley or at the highest peak? And that's the beauty of the book of Psalms. We're calling this little series here Heartaches and Hallelujahs. Because you're going to look at the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at this book together. And what you're going to see is you are going to see, in fact, today he's in one of the lowest of lows. I'll show you that in just a minute. You heard it read, but I'll show you that. In one of the lowest of lows. And then you're going to see other times where he is going and he is just as, as ecstatic and just as, as glorious and joyful as anything could possibly be. And then there's everything in between. And you get to watch the different writers, the psalmists, share how they live the fullness of the Christian life, even in the midst of all the changing circumstances. So I have to tell you, I've, I, um, I've been sort of bursting to get up and to just share some of the things that I've just been seeing in the Psalms and how they've been, um, they've been impacting me. And, I, and so I wanna just tell you, as we get into this little series together, um, three things that I'll offer that can be ways that you can maximize your understanding of Psalms and hopefully uh, increase your walk with the Lord. Um, three things I wanna mention to you. Um, first of all, we send out weekly emails. If you're not on the weekly emails, you can, there's a card in front of you. You can get on that or after the service, scan a QR code. And those come, you can unsubscribe anytime you want. We don't sell you anything. But uh, at the end of those, what they have is they'll have, like today we'll do the first part of Psalm 42. The email is going to talk about the second part. And then you'll get to see what we're doing next week, which is Psalm 43. We'll be in Psalm 43. But you can see that. And then if you pre-read it, even briefly, before the worship service to set your heart and mind for worship, I think those few minutes that you spend can increase the time that we have uh, in here together. Second thing I wanna mention is um, tonight at 5 p.m., you can remember the time, I'm only doing it on one hand. There you go, 5 p.m. in this room. Um, I'm gonna do just a, a 45 minutes or an hour or so of just teaching on the Psalms. Just, it's, it's Hebrew poetry, these are unique, and so I'm just gonna do a big teaching on it. We're gonna be in here so we can stream it as well, so it's something you could watch later if you can't make it tonight. But if you wanna be here for that, that's all we're gonna do is we're gonna open up the Psalms and I'll give the big picture of the Psalms, uh, how we got them, how do we read Hebrew poetry, so hopefully we can bring those to life all the more. And the third thing I'll encourage just briefly is this. <clears throat> I encourage you to bring a Bible with you when you come to church. Um, there's all sorts of reasons for it where if you're listening but you're doing, it's also, it's just easier to remember, even if you're not a marker or highlighter or anything like that. And um, if no other reason, can I, I just wanna give you a picture of think about all our young people who come to church and something that they just see that is formative to them is they might go, I don't know much, I don't know if I remember everything that gets talked about, but I walk in and I see God's army walking in carrying their Bible with them. This thing must be important. 
So I think there's that aspect, but I think it'll also help us in, uh, in the Psalms as well. Um, if, if you don't have it, if you have yours and you want to flip there, you can. If you want to turn to, um, to, we're in Psalm 42 today, um, <clears throat> and I'll tell you a little bit of just an overview of the Psalms. The Psalms are written in five different books that, that were then compiled into the 150 chapter Psalter, sometimes we call it, that are here that we have today. So book one is chapters one through 41. At the beginning of chapter 42, it's says book two, and we usually just go, I don't know what that means, and skip over it. It's because these are separate books that have been put together to become this sort of hymnal, if you will, of Israel. So you've got book one, and there's the chapters. Book two, it's italicized because that's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time in. Um, Book three, you can see book four, and then uh, book five. So there's in these um, five different books, and the reason I, I even bring this up is because at the um, most scholars would say, and I would tend to agree, that the beginnings of the book, so chapter 1, 42, 73, 90, and 107, those tend to be the, the, the first one and sometimes even the second one in each book tend to be there intentionally that is kind of a, um, a setup for a theme that runs throughout that particular book. So in other words, today, we're going to be in Psalm 42. <clears throat> some actually think that Psalm 42 and 43 were originally one psalm. There's some texts where they're together in one psalm. There's actually a refrain in there, why are you cast down, O my soul? And it shows up in Psalm 42, 5, 42, 11, but then it also shows up in 43, 5. And so some think, well, that refrain is there, and there's probably one psalm to begin with. So it's possible, um, and probable even, I would say. But the point is, Psalm 42 and then 43 next week are going to set the tone for this entire second book within the book of Psalms. So that's where we're headed today, and that's where we're headed for the next several Week. So let's get into Psalm 42. It starts out and says, To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, which is, you're probably very excited about a mascal this morning, I'm sure, right? The sons of Korah and a mascal. What are those things? Uh, the sons of Korah, we think, are, um, are some who were responsible for, in First Chronicles 6, um, it talks about groups of people who were responsible for um, worship in the, um, the tabernacle, um, and then also in the Temple. And this is probably after Solomon has built his temple. So these are some that are responsible for um, the worship in the temple. And a mascal, um, we're actually not real sure what it is. Most think that it's some kind of liturgical term, um, possibly even um, like a song or a chorus is what it might be translated as. And so it's probably, this is probably something that, that kicks off book two for sure, um, but something that was either sung or recited or uh, in the worship of God in ancient Israel. A mascal of the sons of Korah. And since it says choir master, I think most people think it's a song. Not necessarily, but most people do. I tend to think that, but I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> now, let me set this up. The psalmist here is far from Jerusalem, and he is longing to be in Jerusalem. That's the context of what's happening in this psalm. This is, uh, we should think differently than like, um, you know, the Pope is away from the Vatican and wants to get back to the Vatican. Or if you're, you know, if you're out of town for several weeks and then you come back here and this is your church and you go, oh, it's so good to be, I missed this place, I wanna be here. It's, it's different than that, it's even, it's even greater than that. This author is not in Jerusalem, which is a place that was given to these people, the Israelites, by God. 
They were outside the promised land. In fact, they were enslaved in Egypt and they were promised this promised land. They get to the promised land. They see, um, they, they get the report back from the spies in the land and they say, we're like grasshoppers to these guys. They're huge. But they go anyway and they miraculously, by the power of God, take the land, set up, they, they have military victory after inexplicable military victory. The only explanation is God is on their side. And they go and then they get, um, they get Jerusalem and this wandering people that has been worshiping God, that has been enslaved, now has a place to worship. The temple of God is there. I think at this point, the Ark of the Covenant is there as well. And this is a place on certain holy days, you would go with God's people up to worship him at the place that they thought had the actual presence of God among them. So when he's saying, I long to be in Jerusalem, he's saying, I long to be in the presence of God. I just get a picture of them. We, we just had a little picture of it, of sitting here singing with God's people, but imagine like walking up to go worship and there's choruses. It's like a, it's like a musical, you know? Like you, you're watching a musical and everybody kicks in and knows all the words and all the dance moves and everything like that and there's something like uniting about it. This is, as they are going to worship, um, this is, they, they are breaking out in song. That's what some of the psalms are. They are in worship together, gathered, and they break out in song using these words to express what they're feeling to God. And so he has this longing to go and be back in Jerusalem in the presence of God. So that's why he says, verse one, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Here's why we think he wants to be in the temple. When shall I come and appear before God? That's the idea of going before God in the temple. And then look at how distraught he is. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And this is why he's in such torment is because he remembers something. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Ooh, that is stirring in his soul as he is away from Jerusalem. And he says, I long to be in the presence of God. The very deepest down part of me, heart and soul, longs for God. Now, oftentimes when we see how much he longs for God, and then we think about our own lives, all it can do is make us feel guilty. Like, oh yeah, I should probably be like that, but I'm not. And isn't it easy, like you see this and we go, gosh, this is like super Christian and, and I would love that someday. But I can't right now because I'm, I'm in college. I can't right now because I'm working on my career. I can't right now because retirement and grandkids and all those things going on. I can't right now because uh, I've got health issues or a family member has health issues and so I have to focus on all the, the, the health, that growth in my life or my professional growth or all these things. But my spiritual growth, that would be great to get to someday. Just not now. And I look at this psalmist who's writing this and we often look and go, well, that's just like the super Christian. That's like the, the thing we'll aspire to but I'm sure we'll never reach. And I think it's in here because the intention is that this would be the normal Christian life. That we would long for God the way that he longs for God that our relationship with God isn't a burden, it's a joy. 
It's a joy to be gathered with God's people. It's a, it's a joy. We find joy even in sacrificing for him. It's a joy to set aside time to, to grow spiritually. It's a joy to do those things, not a burden. That's the life that God has for us. And I have to tell you, it is possible. And that's one of the reasons I'm just bursting to get up here and to tell you about, let me show you what the psalmist does so that that might be possible. Um, <clears throat> let me, I'm gonna talk about something, unfortunately, I know all too well, which is the two ways we tend to approach the Christian life. One, you could call it duty of just the things I do, and then the other one is delight. Or one way to think about it is you have all the actions of the Christian faith, but then you also have the things deep down that we sometimes call affections of the Christian faith. There's actions and there's affections. And um, this would be, if you're someone who lives all the actions and is missing the affections, a way to think of it is you might be believing the right thing, doing the right thing, but your, your heart is not stirred for him. Let me just make a couple comments. Unfortunately, I know this life all too well. This is probably a lot of how I grew up. I was doing all the right things, but I don't really know if there was a deep down love for God. And so um, oftentimes if we live a life of just action and no uh, affection, if it's action only, it can just breed a coldness in us. Like you see a, a young couple about to get married and they're just you know, in, in love and you know, the horses couldn't drag them away from each other and you go, no, and then you see the wedding and no, and everything's so great and you see them together over and over and over and their, their love is binding them together and then all of a sudden, um, wedding's over and everybody leaves and they're like, oh, we gotta, get to, we gotta get to life now and we got jobs and details and moving and then maybe kids come along and, and, and all of a sudden, it can just become about, I have to do this and do this and do this and do this and you can become... Um, you know, they could become a couple that is managing a household and kids' schedules and budgets and things like that. And love and affection for each other can start to grow cold. If we have the same thing with God where it's all about just what I do, it can just be a downward spiral to not have our affections just stirred for him. Um, Action-only type living, no affection, can breed self-righteousness. You remember... Um, Remember the Pharisees in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story, he says, two men went up to pray and the Pharisee stands and says, God, I thank you, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That is self-righteousness. That is someone living by a scorecard of where their actions have brought them. It's the report card of going, I got an A today. Oh, you're like a solid B or B plus. No, that's good for you. And then all of a sudden, it can become this, this self-righteous thing of looking down at others, and we start looking down at others, and they're people for whom God's heart just breaks. It can be this scorecard kind of living, and, and there's a bunch of negative impacts of this. I would say the other thing, is it just breeds exhaustion. If all we have is just action and there's no affection for him, there's no heart behind it, it can just breed exhaustion in our Christian life. And we are called to action and to affection. And the psalmist is about to show practical ways that that actually plays out in our lives. So let me, let me give you the two ways, um, two things that can help stir our affections for God. And we'll see them here in this text. One is um, first being honest about our sin. We'll talk about that first. And second is something called speaking to ourselves. I'll explain that as we get to it. But again in verse one, we're gonna talk being honest about our sin. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, 
O God. Isn't it interesting? Our souls don't pant. Deers do. We understand that imagery. And in fact, we sang it earlier, as the deer um, panteth for the water, so my soul longs for you. Oftentimes, people translate it like that. It's what it means. It actually is the exact same word. Pants and pants. The deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. And, and it's interesting because you go, well, this doesn't really, that's not what my soul does. But in the context of Psalms, we read it and go, I get it. My soul thirsts for you. Our souls don't thirst in the same way our, our mouths and throats and everything thirst. But we go, oh, I get it. There's something deep down within us that's almost an involuntary, I want God. I want to be with him. I want to be in his presence. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Um, this is where I was saying that, that one of the most important things we have to do is be honest about our sin before God. You have him longing for the presence of God, and the thing that hinders us from the fullness of the presence of God tends to be unrepentant, unconfessed sin in our own life. This goes all the way back to, um, to the Garden of Eden. If you've been in the Bible studies during the week, we've just talked about this too. In the Garden of Eden, they had this perfect fellowship with God, and then all of a sudden, they eat the fruit, and then God is in the, in, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and instead of going, yay, God is here, which they had been doing, I don't know if they actually said that, but you get the point. All of a sudden, after sin has entered, what happens when God walks in the garden? They cover themselves, and they hide from him. They hide, it says, from the face or the presence of God. And you see it throughout Christian history, all the way, actually, we just looked at this in the book of Revelation, um, in the Bible studies, we just looked at this, that it, it's getting this picture of judgment day, and it says people are seeing God, and in their sin, they are hiding from the face of God, from the presence of God. Our sin does that. Our sin keeps us from the presence of God in the sense that it's... it's um, Going before him, when we have something unconfessed in our heart, it is hard for us to keep that and then stand before him and not confess it and still have a clear conscience. And over time, that relationship starts to dwindle if we think I'm gonna have unconfessed, unrepentant sin, but still have the fullness of the relationship with him. I said it like this. You will not long for the presence of God with unrepentant sin in your heart. You will not long for the full presence of God with unrepentant sin in your heart. I can fight it for a while. I can justify it for a while, but eventually it's going to grow and grow and grow, and that relationship with God starts to deteriorate. Eventually, you'll wear out. Let me just tell you, whatever, whatever benefit you perceive some, some ongoing, unconfessed sin in your life gives you, the presence of God is better. The fullness of a relationship with God is better. And, and I feel like almost every time this, this comes up, I, I, I can read minds here a little bit of, um, well, I don't, uh, I'm not doing all the big bad things. I'm, I don't have a you know, fake internet account on social media where I'm out trolling people and stirring up anger. I'm not embezzling money. I'm not cheating on my spouse. I haven't done, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is. And so, good, I'm good. Other people need to confess, not so much me. But do you have an idol in your life that needs to be gone? 
Does your selfishness in your life manifest itself in ways that we don't really talk about a lot, and so it's easy to just sort of let it fly under the radar? Is there something in you that you go, I, I need to bring this before the Lord? Do you have an addiction that's very private and you haven't told anybody? Do you find life in what others think about you and your own successes? These are things that we can take from our heart. We can give them to the Lord and go to him because you will not long for the presence of God with unrepentant sin in your heart. You will want to be Adam and Eve and pull back from him. So what he calls us to do is go to him. And when we do, he does two things. He does the same things that my mom would do when I went to her and I confessed to her. I have a vague memory when I was young that there was a, I think it was a glass that broke and my mom got me and, me and my, I got a big sis, she got us together and she said something like, do you all know what happened to the glass? And what I should have said is, I broke it and I didn't tell you. What I did say was something like, glass? I, I know nothing of the glass, mother, and tell me more. And, uh, and she looked at me, and I, I still remember this. Th- there were so many times, now that I'm a parent too, I see it. There were many times when my, I would go to my mom, and, uh, or she would ask, and I would, I would lie. And I was a really bad liar, which might be a good thing, actually, if I'm bad at lying. And now I know because I'm a parent, and I knew some in the moment, um, where, like that one with the glass, afterwards I would go to my mom and go, Mom, you're not going to believe this. The glass thing, that was me. I know I was so convincing in my lie, you probably didn't get that, but that was in fact me, mother. And sometimes she would say it, but I think every single time she knew it, that she would go, I know. And then something else that would always happen with my mom, every time I would tell her, that was me, she would go, I know, and I would watch, and I never once questioned if her love for me dipped. It didn't. When we go to God, he knows. And when you go to him, his love for you does not decrease based on something that you're telling him that he already knows anyway. Go to him. When you come for communion in just a little bit, whatever that thing is, how great would it be if by the power of the Holy Spirit you could leave that at this table? I believe that's something that God would have for us. And then he's gonna show us, we talked about the peaks or the peaks and the valleys. We're gonna talk valley right now. This is about as low as low can get. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. I don't know if there's a better way to describe how distraught somebody is. My tears have been my food Day and night. And he says, well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Now, we don't know if he's personifying the tears here to say when, why they say to me, or later on he's gonna say his adversaries say to him. So I'm not sure which it is, but he's crying. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, all the time. He's just been sobbing. And then he's also um, feeling something about adversaries or his tears that are saying, where is your God? I long to be with him. And here's what he remembers. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, all of God's redeemed people, he's saying, in Israel, and lead them in procession to the house of God, glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. And here's that little phrase again that shows up three different times. Why are you cast down, O my soul, 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Another reason I say this is one of the lowest points you could possibly be at is, <clears throat> is this. Jesus actually quotes this psalm. And it's a little tricky to see because he quotes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. By the time they both moved to English, you can see it looks like there's a few differences. But if you look at the Greek in the New Testament and the Greek Old Testament that Jesus would have been quoting, there are phrases here from the Old Testament he quotes exactly in the New Testament. The way it's quoted in the New Testament is Jesus saying, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, and he's quoting actually from this psalm. You know when he says this? When he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and the betrayer is coming. He's te- he knows it's coming. He knows his death is coming. This is when he chooses to quote this psalm. This is about as heartbroken as heartbroken can be. And so how does this little portion of the psalm end with a little section of hope? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Even in the worst of circumstances, he does something to help him worship even in the midst of that. What does he do? Well, um, Tim Keller has a great little YouTube devotional about this, and um, he says, uh, he calls it talking to yourself, not listening to yourself. Talking to yourself, not listening to yourself, which sounds like a self-help seminar, but hang on just a minute, and let me explain what's happening. He says, talking, talking to yourself, not listening to yourself. You notice what the psalmist is doing. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Who's he talking to? Oh, my soul, why are you cast down? He's talking, he's he's sharing something, he's speaking something to himself. And so what Keller's trying to say, and I think is wise, is the idea of listening to yourself is is all the circumstances around me are, are doing this to my heart, are forming this in me. 99 things are great, one is not so great, this is the one that sticks out in my mind, and so this is the thing that's trying to have sway in my life. And he's saying instead of doing that, Speak these words. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. It's redirected hope. For I shall again praise him. He is speaking actually to himself. There's that. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a, um, a Welsh Protestant minister and he was a pastor at um, Westminster Chapel for 30 years. And here's what he says about this text. He says, the first thing we have to learn is what the psalmist learned. He is addressing himself. It is important to see that this is not the same as morbidity and introspection. Okay, he's not saying he's just like chanting or he's, having, he, he's doing you know, some yoga something or he's just like um, meditating in a secular kind of way. This is, he, he is speaking some truth to his own soul is what this is saying. Um, we must talk to ourselves instead of letting ourselves talk to us. That's letting our circumstances talk to us. In spiritual depression, we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you realized that so much of your unhappiness in your life is due to your listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So this man stands up, the psalmist, and says, self, listen for a moment. Then you must go on and remind yourself 
of who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. And then on this great note, defy yourself, defy other people, defy the circumstances, defy the devil, and even the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him, for he is my God. Let me try and clarify this. If we're just listening to what our heart may be running towards because, because emotions, because circumstances have really started to press in on us, in this moment we might be going, well, this isn't fair, what's happening. Oh, this will never, ever get better. Things are just going badly and they're just gonna keep going badly and badly and badly. We can go to worst case scenario over and over and over. And what he's saying is turn, in a sense, to your very own heart and speak the words of what you know about God. Remind yourself of who he is. Remind yourself of what he has promised that he will do. So Keller says to redirect your hope. So I think about it like this. When I think about um, my justification before God, no matter what is going on in the world, when I think about my justification, my being right before God, all of a sudden, my past is in my past. That's behind me. When I think about the forgiveness that I have before God, any guilt, shame, anything that maybe pulled me to this point, maybe I'm in the dumps because it's my fault, that is gone when I think about God and what he has done and I place my hope in him. I am forgiven in him. My guilt and shame is gone. When I think about my own sanctification, my growing in my spiritual life, no matter what circumstance I'm in, if I can think of that instead, what God, what God has done and who he is, I can remember, I am a work in progress. I'll be smarter, hopefully, more wiser in a few years than I am right now. Maybe I won't walk into this problem again, whatever it is. And we can remember, this is going to get better. When I think about my adoption, and to his family, I think I have a perfect heavenly father. That I have a God when I cry out to him in the midst of it. If I'm ever saying my tears are my food, I'm crying out to him. And he is listening and he hears me like a father would hear any one individual of his children. When I think about the resurrection, I remember everything I'm going through is temporary. When I think about how much he loves me, it, bur it, it, it swells my confidence. It makes me think I don't have to handle this in a certain way and prove myself at the end of that. I don't have to do any of that. I'm, I am perfectly loved how I am because of what God has done for me. That's what the psalmist is trying to say. When we're in the midst of those moments, how can we think of God, who he is, what he has done on our behalf? It's kind of empowering, I think, because there's two of these things that are actually in our control. As we go before God and we are honest with our sin before him, and then we can speak words of truth when our heart starts bending to all of the circumstances around us, remembering who God is and what he has done. And when we do that, we can declare with the psalmist together, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. <laughs>